Yuval Noah Harari is an Oxford-trained historian. Born and bred in Israel, he wrote a wonderful book five years ago called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. In a follow-up to Sapiens, he wrote another powerful book called 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. And in this book, he cited some startling st statistics which are worthy of reflection. And what he said is, for the first time in history, more people die today from eating too much than from eating too little. More people die today from old, old age than from infectious diseases. And more people commit suicide than are killed by soldiers, terrorists, and criminals combined. And while I appreciate that what he wrote is all valid, I also went on and as I learned more about the statistics for suicide, at least in the United States, I found out another few startling statistics. Number one, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. Number two, approximately 132 people a day die from it. And each year, approximately 1.4 million Americans attempt to commit suicide. And the most startling thing I think that I've learned through all of this is 54% of Americans are affected in some way by somebody in their immediate circle who has committed suicide. Welcome to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation on Talk Radio 77 WABC. I'm Chuck Garcia. My guest this evening is Rose Aviles. Rose, welcome to A Climb to the Top. Thank you so much, Chuck. I am, it's an honor to be here with you today, as well as to be speaking to audiences. So thank you. Before we get to the situation and you can help our listeners deal with the issue of suicide, tell us about yourself, Rose. What do you do? Great, thank you. I am a community services coordinator in the city of Yonkers, New York, specifically for the Yonkers Public Library System. Interesting enough, I'm not a librarian, but working in the library system allows me to work with all of the community organizations in the city of Yonkers and beyond, really. Um, it's a rewarding position. I also teach at Long Island University Post as an adjunct professor. Right. I teach media law and ethics, which is ironic in this case because I study a lot of philosophy which has allowed me to extend my research into other areas now that uh, my sister has um, completed suicide. And I'm not yeah. sure if we're ready to jump into that, but that's essentially what I do. I'm a community services coordinator that cares a lot about people, the community. So the first thing I want to get into before we talk about your sister, Jennifer, you, you, I want to be sure that we have the right words. You had said before, now we talk about it in terms of having committed suicide. Is, the, is that the right vernacular? How do we talk about this subject? And then we can get on with it. Great question, Chuck. I did not know that committing suicide is technically a negative way of saying that someone has taken their life until we did a program at Yonkers Public Library, public program open to the community in reference to suicide. It was a suicide symposium and it was um, a doctor and a psych psychologist who came in to talk to the audience 
and I learned in that program that the the correct terminology is completion of suicide. Good, good. Best we get that over with, and we now establish the standard by which we can talk about it. Tell us about your family situation, your sister Jennifer. Paint the scene. What happened? It is a very hard topic to discuss, but it's very important that everyone understands that suicide is and always has been something that's called a stigma. And, and that's why it's so important and crucial to discuss this. So if I do cry <laughs> or I get emotional, please excuse me ahead of time. Uh, I live in a normal, what, what we would consider a normal family, you know, normal dynamics. I have a brother and sister and I, my parents divorced when I was very young. And I have now a, a new a new set of family members, I guess, is how we would put it. Um, so I have two. I have my mother, my biological mo mother, and I have my stepmother, which is where my other sister comes in, my half-sister. My father remarried when I was very young. And she, she and I grew up in two different worlds where she stayed with my stepmother and my father. I most of the time stayed with my mother. And these are two different environments, actually. My sister was my idol. My sister was someone that I, I really looked up to. And she, even though she was from a different mother, we never once said that this is my half-brother, half-sister, or stepbrother, stepsister. We always said, we always introduced as, this is my brother, this is my sister no questions asked. So that was how we were raised and we didn't know any difference between one another as siblings. We had a very normal upbringing. She was the first in our family to go to college. She was a very smart, intellectual young woman, but she was also very quiet, Chuck. Mm -hmm. And they always, there's that saying, always watch the ones who are quiet. Still waters run deep. That's right. And she, her silence was, was so loud that it ran deep, especially if you knew her. Right. She went off to college. She came back a different person. How so? She experimented with, um, she met this guy and the guy introduced her to ecstasy, which was a one-time thing while she was off in college. And she had a bad trip, which is what is told. You know, we're not exactly sure if this is the real story, but what is told is that she, she had a bad trip on one ecstasy pill that really made her start to think differently. And from that point forward, my parents looked very closely at what she was doing, how she was living her life, but things got better. So you fast forward 20 years, she's living her life as a single mother. Um, she was very interested and passionate about going to school for healthcare. But she was a stay-at-home mom during the time because her husband worked a lot and was barely ever around. And so she, they needed the childcare. She stayed at home. And for a while, she was very happy. And then suddenly she was not because she wanted to do other things with her life. I think my parents were worried about what would happen if she did 
go back to college and you know kind of go out into the bigger world i think that they felt because she had a bad experience in college years before there was this um dynamic of the trust being deteriorated or maybe they were just worried but she stayed in her position as a stay-at-home mom and we didn't know that she was depressed and and did she, did she not either self-admittedly not aware of it or didn't communicate it to you? She did not communicate it to anyone. And, and you mean the depression, correct? Correct. Although she did not communicate it, though, visually, we noticed that she was ultra quiet. Visually, we noticed. I know hindsight is twenty twenty, but in looking back at what seems perhaps the early warning signal many years earlier, were you noticing now in her adult life any behaviors that seem similar to what you had seen early on? No. No. Okay. So it was something different. Right. Because there was college, a decline right. in her mannerisms, her behaviors, then brought her back home. There was the incline of her behaviors and her positive thinkings and then there was always this but during that process we didn't realize that what was happening was a steady decline and she didn't vocalize it she didn't communicate it but we knew that she was taking pills for depression through her, her therapist and fast forwarding to the the week the last week that she was alive um, she, because she was such a quiet person, Chuck, it just seemed very natural for her to sit somewhere, be quiet, watch TV. Sometimes she just doesn't want to be bothered. She's, she's, she was that kind of person. But she was reaching out in a way, I think, where no one really noticed because it seemed of her norm. Right. And then just the next day, the following day, she was gone. She had attempted to go to the hospital though, Chuck. And they, when she walked into the hospital and, and seeked help, there's an investigation currently going on because we're not quite sure if she was turned away or if they told her to wait. Regardless, she walked out and, and she killed herself because she wasn't being seen or given the attention she needed at that time. But what you could establish, irrespective of what the hospital did, there was a cry for help and it came suddenly because the event of the completion of the suicide happened immediately after her cry. Were there any cries that you were able to see in retrospect prior to that? I think way back when she originally came back from college, there was a cry however i do not think that even she herself realized okay i'm i'm depressed and i need help she knew that she needed help after the the psychotic breakdown with the ecstasy right but i remember hanging out with her a year or two after that event happened and she sat there and had a very normal comprehensive conversation with me in reference to what happened to her and how she was past that, but she would never forget the experience that she had. But she, she had already driven herself past all of that. So I wanna say that initial, 
cry or call, there's about a 10 to 12 year time span in between that. Right, making it even more challenging. Let me break for a minute. You are listening to a Climb to the Top Stories of Transformation on Talk Radio 77 WABC. I'm Chuck Garcia, and my guest this evening is Rose Aviles. But what I'd like to do, Rose, is to shift this, and I'm so sorry for your loss and to your family, and certainly we feel your pain. What does that speak of to, to suicide as a societal ill, and why is it so prevalent? Great question. I've done a lot of research, especially since... Jennifer took her life, and I think that in society, we don't talk about it enough, so there isn't this priority to study it as, as often or as much as we should. It's, what I'm realizing is that it's more of a, a new, it's a, it's a modern day kind of scientific thing that we want to learn more about, and through my research, I, I feel like the, really, the point in which things took a turn was in 2016. We see this, as you mentioned, an increase, a tremendous increase in suicidal rates in the United States of America. It's, you know, young people are killing themselves. This is, let's take COVID out of the equation for a moment because now we have adults, we have seniors, we have every age and level in society of people that are taking their own lives. Pre-COVID, this is a tremendous increase within every, within the United States of America, but mostly within young people. My sister, she was young. And that's what boggles everyone's mind is how could someone so young, beautiful, have, you know, intellect? Because Chuck, you don't, we don't know, scientists don't know at what age, at what point does a trigger happen in your mind? Is there a chemical imbalance? Or did someone say something to make you want to take your life? Um, how premeditated is the process up to when you do take your own life? It varies. It's completely different across the board with every age group um, and demographic, let's just say. And for so, Jennifer, let's be specific to our listeners. How old was she? Jennifer, when she took her life, was 38 years old. At what age? are most Americans taking their lives? 24 to 34. Okay, so, so Jennifer was just above that. Why that age, when they seemingly have so much more future, what's happening? I think it's an onset. At the age of 12, 11 years old, our children are becoming excessively depressed. Right. And so if, if that's when it's starting, 11, 12, 13, and no one is bringing attention to this, Chuck, then what you have is an incline in the brain. This is kind of like a seed that is planted, a seed of depression, which scientists believe is the seed that leads to um, the completion of suicide or the acts of suicide, injuring yourself, which a lot of teens do. And now in the United States of America, what multimedia is doing uh, especially with shows like 13 Reasons, a very popular show within our young children, uh, ages eight to their teen, um, they're watching a very sensationalized or, yeah, it's sensationalized way of a young teenager taking her own life and the reasons of which she takes her own life. For me personally, that opens 
the door, right? But it's like a gateway of saying, in society, this is more so accepted than it isn't accepted. I know that that's not the message they're trying to deliver, but we're talking about children, a brain that hasn't fully developed, that is in its developmental process. Yes, as a child from four to I think seven is the most influential um, means of you know your brain development, but you're still developing at 11, 12, 13, 14. That's why they say don't smoke marijuana, right? So maybe certain things shouldn't be seen as well. Maybe certain things should be brought to the, the forefront in terms of what suicide means and the seeds of creating those thoughts that lead to the ultimate completion of suicide. In society, I think that scientists are just now starting to really dig deep into that. In 2016 is when scientists discovered, okay, this isn't something that is an outlier or um, that we can pinpoint to a particular uh, brain chemical imbalance or disease. Maybe it's not a mental disease, rather maybe it's something else. And this is in 2016, so this isn't even a decade ago. We're not there yet. This is four or five years ago. As a society, what should we be doing about this? Mentorship, advocacy for our children. We should communicate more. Maybe there should even be a, a teaching curriculum about something like this. Those are ways to solve or, or start to develop resolutions that work in society. We teach our children history. We teach our children health. But we, in, in, when I learned health, Chuck, I learned about sexually transmitted diseases. They scared me away from ever wanting you know, to, to experience what sexual intercourse was. We can do the same thing fundamentally with mental diseases or... And you know what? I take back mental disease because it's not for certain that when you complete suicide, it's caused by a mental disease. But as I was prepping for this show, I was astonished at the thought that 132 people a day die and that the bigger picture is over a million Americans actually attempt it. So where do we put it? Do we put it in formal education or does it belong somewhere else? Great question. I think informal education as well as creating movies that, you know, multimedia or advertisements that help our children and our adults in a setting that is safe, confident, confidential, and comfortable for the person to be open about how they're they're feeling or these thoughts that they're having are these normal thoughts yeah a formal teaching curriculum would definitely be at the top of the list for this what do we do to stimulate our economy educate you and i both teach college and we teach undergraduates and what my observation i don't know what yours are but there is a stigma for failure there is a fear of making the mistakes a fear of doing anything wrong because many fear judgment oh my god if i get this wrong and these are just simple things with nothing at stake other than perhaps a grade or you know some somebody has been criticized in the way they didn't understand but that is a far cry from the completion of suicide Yet, there is so much unhappiness. Do you think that it is partly driven by these expectations 
maybe they're not driven by our teachers or our parents. Maybe it is just a multimedia thing. Right. We have so many options. That in itself is overwhelming, and that's statistical evidence. It, they did a study for our younger people, those specifically who were going to college, and noted that the majority of them going into college were so overwhelmed because they have no idea what classes to take, what, what course curriculum to take, what path they want to take in their life, because we have amazing amounts of options to choose from. So um, there's a comedian, I, he's an Indian comedian, and I forget his name, but he's also a psychologist for, for college students. And what he says is, just pick something, roll with it, and then as life progresses and your journey progresses, it'll start to happen. You know, it'll start to, the pieces will come together for you. So I think there's way too much pressure on our children, teens, as well as our adolescents. 20 years ago, on any given day, the average American would be on the receiving end of approximately 20,000 words. Now, in this age, the average American is on the receiving end of about 100,000 words a day. And that the cavemen, while they didn't have the technology, perhaps they were as happy in the Garden of Eden, more so because they weren't on the receiving end of this. Do you feel that this potentially correlates, not causal, but perhaps a correlation to the overwhelming circumstances that many who take their life are feeling? I think so. Think about that for one second. You talked literally just about words. Right. All of nothing them. else. There's nothing else to do, just that. And you're overwhelmed by words. Right. So we also add to that equation images. Right. Images, that's, I personally took myself off of Instagram because I started to feel that sense of, oh, wow, I'm not sure I can add up to that. Or how do I make myself look and feel more like that person and what they're doing in their life? That looks better than what I have. So how do I get that? Yeah, it's, that's a good point because I find when we add all of this up and then we integrate social comparison and the pressure to be like, and then we add in the celebrity culture, everybody is worshiping somebody else, but they're never going to be like that. Or then maybe they will, but they aspire. They want to be it. They're around that. And you just, all of these things are encircling us. It's no wonder that there's a breakdown or at least a rise in the anxiety that often leads to unfortunately, the tragic events that happened to Jennifer. Well, in the time remaining, Rose, we always ask ourselves on the show, and let's direct this to anyone of the 54% who may have this in their life in some capacity. When it comes to seeing someone who is potentially or depressed, anxious, or maybe suicidal, what do we want our listening audience to think about the subject? What do we want them to feel about the subject? And then lastly, what do we want them to do? So let's look at that. What do we want them to think about the topic of suicide? I want, I would like this audience to think about suicide as currently being very speculative. We don't know enough and that means that it's, it's open, it's completely open. And if you're thinking in terms of speculation, as to if you lost someone the way I've lost someone, 
Speculation will drive you crazy. Don't speculate anymore. That's Good. it. Done is done. We cannot control it. But what we can control is how we feel. Like you said, Chuck, how do you want your audience to feel? You want them to, I would like the audience to feel and know that throughout my experience, really quick, I'll touch on a, a very quick story. During this COVID experience in the past two weeks, I had a really good friend of mine whose father's father, so basically a grandfather, shot and killed his wife and then killed himself with a shot, a, a gun. And my friend is overwhelmed, very speculative. It's new, it's fresh. I went through this and I know that it gets very heavy. When you speculate, it's very heavy. You keep trying to ask yourself what happened. You feel the sense of guilt, shame. You don't really know who to talk to about it or how to talk to, how to talk to people about it. Um, they're layers. You just peel one layer at a time because the layers get really heavy. And when I say layers, I'm talking about the layer of guilt, the layer of shame, the layer of speculation, the layer of wanting to understand something that there is no real answer about. Those sort of things can just continue to replay in our mind and really take a toll on us and drive us into our own depression. I know because I experienced it. Right, that's a good point, Rose. Not only are we feeling the impact of the consequence of somebody else's depression, but if you continue to speculate and you drive your own self, you know, in, 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 in a little bit of all this anxiety and confusion, you end up becoming the next potential victim of it because you're so saddened or feeling guilt from the impact of what had happened. Don't let it happen to you. Is that the message? Talk about it, deal with it rather than bottle it up, bottle, bottle up that speculation. 100% Chuck. Absolutely. Yeah. By bottling it up, ultimately what we're doing to ourselves, we're harming ourselves. And that's what my sister did. She didn't, she didn't express it. She didn't vocalize it. And maybe if she had done that with my, my mother, my father, things would be different. Or even me or my brother, anyone. Talk to anyone within your immediate family. Pick one person. Yes, you go to a doctor, you go to your therapist, you tell them. But I think it's crucial that we also have that one person that we confide in close within our circle. Maybe you're not comfortable talking about it because it seems very, you're scared that the person is going to judge you. And that's one of the biggest problems that we have in our society is casting judgment. Okay, we're human. We have these judgmental ways of being, but try as hard as we can to be conscious beings and understand that no one person is the same. And when it comes to feeling depressed or having a mental illness disease, we have to be as loving, warm, and compassionate as we can to accept the message that we're receiving. And when someone says to you that I'm having suicidal thoughts, the most important thing you say, you ask them first is, do you think that those suicidal thoughts are going to cause you to hurt yourself? And if the answer is yes, we have to go into reactive mode. Well, let's leave it at that. You have listened to a climb to the top stories of transformation on Talk Radio 77 WABC. My guest this evening, Rose Rose Avilas. Rose, thank you very much for coming in and talking to us about such a sensitive matter. We really appreciate that. 
Thank you, Chuck. It's been a pleasure to be here. And to our audience, certainly you can always reach out to me. My email address is chuck at kleinleadership.com. You can always find me on my website. You can find at chuckgarcia.com. You are listening live on 77 WABC, but you can also go to my website or my YouTube channel to watch this on demand. Thank you to our listeners for for being there and for taking the advice and the insight that Rose has offered and that I hope in the spirit of happiness and prosperity for you and your family that one day we will be able to break this barrier, so to speak, that leads to the anxiety and depression that we can all help each other. So I'm signing off here. Good night. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.